Wendy Yin is a Santa Cruz poet, and she heard about uh, the 32 parts of the body, and, well, she had her own creativity, and she created the 110 functions of the body. So get ready, fasten your seatbelt. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing. Hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing. Salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting. Transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing. Burning, building, copying, creating, destroying. Cramping, flatulating, defecating. Pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating. Listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying. Speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, prosopeptepting, <laughs> sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, Sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, painting, fevering, painting, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Wonder whether we can chant that tomorrow morning. <laughs> so that's quite something. Maybe I'll also I'll uh, read what I was going to start with. So this is from Mary Oliver. It's called the body. So bless the fingers, for they are as darting as fire. Bless the little hairs of the body, for they are softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they are cunning beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when it's working it has a godly grip. Bless the feet for their knuckles and their modesty. Bless the spine for it is the whole story. Very beautiful. So I want to congratulate you all. We've um, completed, of course, another day of practice, but completed... Um, the 32 parts of the body, this fathom long body. Again, I think that the whole teachings of the Dharma are really summed up in this beautiful words from the Samyutta Nikaya, when the Buddha says that within this fathom long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its beginning, its ending, its pathway to freedom is here within this fathom long body. This is really like the whole teaching. Yeah. So I want to speak a little bit more about uh, this practice um, because I, I know some of you have already been getting notes saying, well, where can I learn more? And actually, maybe just to say, um, 
I actually created a website, and it's actually on your chant sheet called 32parts.com. <laughs> I'm not selling anything on there, but it's, it actually gives a thorough, defin, all the definitions that you've been hearing, and this audio of guided meditations for these parts, so it's a, it's a good resource to do practice. And I know that some of you are going to um, be investigating, perhaps uh, with an internet search, uh, about the 32 parts, and inevitably you will come across some uh, information that will speak about the 32 parts of the body being a practice of the meditation on the repulsive. This is written also in Buddhist texts. So I want to just kind of speak about this now and... Um, so that there's not too big of a surprise. Um, you will definitely find in some, there's different ways to practice this. And so uh, there is some strong language like the meditation on the repulsive, on the disgusting aspects of the body. And it's pretty, uh, pretty strong language. And as you may have noticed, we are not teaching from that perspective. I think we as Westerners have enough hard time with our bodies. And... Um, I think part of the intention back during the time of the Buddha was that this was often uh, mostly a monastic practice with uh, celibacy, and so this was a way to help break attachment or to lessen attachment. And uh, it's also actually in the canonical literature where stories where actually a group of monks took this practice to the extreme, practicing on what they call the foul, the disgusting, the repulsive, and they all ended up taking their life. And then the Buddha, like, you know, like that's kind of uh, going over the edge a little bit here. A lot of it. But you will come across this, and perhaps there's a skillful means with some of the monastics in using this practice in this way, but you will also find in the canonical literature of this practice in a more matter-of-fact way as it, as it moves into the meditation on the elements. And so we've decided, I, actually I guess I decided early on when I uh, began to get really into the practice and um, want to practice it and teach it, is that I took it upon myself to um, consult three physician friends of mine in medical dictionaries, and rather than putting in descriptive language that's positive and negative, negative about the, the body parts, is just to put it straight as it is. Head hair, thin, flexible shafts of heart cells. That's what it is. And so it just felt presenting it from a very neutral perspective with not any type of agenda to have it to be positive or negative because depending on how we're with it, we'll just be with whatever is in direct experience and, and be aware of that and acknowledge that. And so it, that felt to me very important to present this in a very neutral way. It felt very skillful to um, let, let's investigate it in this way. And, you know, it, it will serve the same purpose, I believe, in that it's pointing to breaking the spell of enchantment. So I'll give an example, you know, I mean, how many of us here have gone to the haircutting place and come back and said, I hate it? You look in the mirror. Anybody ever have that experience? Actually, I don't now because I don't have any hair. I just, I just shave it off. 
Anyone? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, okay. You hate it. So, you know, what is it? It's thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. What's the problem? (laughs) But the cosmetic industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, will, will have us believe that this is very important. It is important. Prevent, you know, for thermal regulation, protection from ultraviolet light. That is incredibly important. (laughs) No? No? How much time do we spend on the do here? And, you know, thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. Like, when you think about it, the Buddha was pretty wise. The first five parts, head, hair, body, hair, nail, sheath, skin... These are the parts that we see on everyone, and the cosmetic industry knows this, and it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And we are fussing and primping and all types of things on head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. It's incredible. And we look in magazines, and somehow there's some idea that this, is, this looks nice, and this doesn't look nice, and we're caught in this illusion, this enchantment of what we think the body should look like. And now with computer imaging, like we don't even know what a person looks like anymore. It's like some computer image. And so this practice really works with that, that dispelling the enchantment and to begin to see the body as it really is. This to me is a very, very important part of the practice. It was amazing last night when Christiana was, uh, I don't think I'll have it fully Right, what she was saying, but there was some people that were like they were drawing their own picture, and then other people were drawing it, and the one that drew their own picture that was a lot less quote unquote beautiful than the, like the others that drew the picture of that person, and you know the sense of our own self-loathing at times, our judgment is immense. This is why I think that this practice is so healing, is that we begin to see the hair as the hair. The skin is the skin, the teeth is the teeth, the nails as the nails, and so forth. Beginning to break that spell, that spell of enchantment that actually has caused so much suffering. I mean, again, I was telling you the story about on my bar mitzvah with all this brill cream in my ear. Why, why was I putting all this brill cream on? I wanted to look good. For those of you who don't know what brill cream is, this oily type of <laughs> stuff. You, I mean, my hair was sopping with oil. But I was desperate to be liked and to be loved and to what I thought would be good looking. Like how much have we spent in that mirror not happy with what it is that was saying? Yeah. So this is a very powerful practice to begin to break through these enchantments, to begin to see the body and to experience it in another way. And I love what Christian brought up last night about, you know, as we begin to penetrate it, we begin to, the, the gratitude that all the, you know, even pus. It was interesting in our small group, we had a couple of doctors in there, they were just talking all about pus in the small group. Like, like without pus, you know, inflammation would continue to happen. It's, the, it, it's helping to, to heal. Seeing the body in a new light, the gratefulness of the body. And yes, the very impersonal aspect of the body. So this is a very interesting practice. It's, it's incredibly personal and incredibly impersonal. And they're both there. 
And of course, um, <clears throat> from that Martha Elliot poem, that our history is here inside our body. This is where we live our life. It's all in here. Actually, um, it's interesting. One of the very first class I ever taught, there was a, a chief financial officer, retired officer that had, was taking the class. Her name was Virginia. And um, she got very interested on um, how, approximately how much money she spent on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. <laughs> From the time that she was born until she was 67. And so, you know, it's very interesting, like, well, how much have I spent, like, between the ages of, you know, zero to 10, like, on shampoo, conditioners, curling irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments, how much on body hair? I mean, this is actually through the years, like, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, then teeth, toothpaste, dental floss, Toothbrushes, electronic toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin, lotion, moisture, cleanser, makeup, peels, facial work, laser work, uh, skin cancer freezing, and so forth. I mean, it, it reached you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. She had, she has this whole like Excel sheets of of all that she spent on these things. She actually gave me an updated version a couple of years ago because she, she's now a little bit older, and. Uh, and it's going up in price. <coughs> it's a lot. So this practice, of course, leads, as we hone into these body parts, quite naturally in time, they begin to naturally break down <clears throat> into the elements of solidity and liquidity, motion and temperature. Mary Grace was speaking about, um, you know, this explosion that, of course, created all these atoms, and cells are made of atoms, and so that, you know, the, we are made of stardust, even though it's been made popular as a song, there's, there's some science behind that, that, you know, we come from the stars, come from these elements as well, and so this practice begins to in time, as it goes from the body parts, it begins to d- dissolve into solids, liquids, motion, and temperature. With the, the sense of, 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 of um, separation begins to get blurry. Just as the solidness of this table is the solidness of this skull. Just as the liquid that's in my saliva, there's the liquid within the trees and the ponds and the rivers and the creeks and the oceans. Just as that movement in motion, the ability to, to move, to ambulate, the heart's beating and so forth, is the winds that are moving and different objects moving. Just as the sense of temperature within the body, there's temperature in the natural world. And so we begin to see that the very solids and liquids and motion and temperature that exist within this body 
are also found in the natural world. And maybe we'll just do a little experiment and just invite you to bring your awareness into your nose. Where we'll experience all these elements. And just breathing in and breathing out. And so at some point as you bring your awareness into your nose, you will no doubt at a certain point feel a, a touching, like a point of contact where the air is brushing against the inner nostrils of the tip of the nose, the nose hairs. And as you breathe out, you're feeling that sense of contact and touch, and that is the element of solidity, the earth element. <clears throat> And as we feel into the nose, unless the nose is really dry, in a lot of cases the nose is kind of liquidy, it's got some moisture, and you can sense in and just feeling into the liquid, liquid element within the nose, or if not, definitely in your mouth, the element of liquidity. And as breathing in and out, you're feeling the breath as it comes in, of course, and goes out, the sense of motion and movement, the element of motion or the air. And of course, when there is solids in liquids, in movement that's happening in a contained space, the body generates heat. And so as you breathe in, you might feel that the air is a little bit cooler when you breathe in, and as it circulates in this 98.6 degree organism, as you breathe out, the breath may be a little bit warmer. This is the element of temperature. So within this nose are these elements, and of course within the body, the solidness of the bones, the teeth. Put this body on a scale, it's got mass and weight. This is the element of solidity. And the solidity is also found in the natural world of the hardness of the earth and rock, building, so forth. And within this fathom-long body, there's also the element of liquidity. Wetness in the mouth, the blood, the urine, all those liquid parts found in the body, and of course, in the rivers, in the oceans, inside plants. Liquidity. And yes, this sense of motion, the breath in, the breath out, the heart's beating, digestion's working, ability to move limbs, the sense of motion found in the body, also found in the natural world. Sense of movement, wind, 
And yes, this temperature of the body, some places it might be warmer, some places cooler. Temperature in the body, the element of temperature in the world. Perhaps this is why um, Albert Einstein, he has a very um, amazing quote. So thank you for just doing a little of this practice of the elements. So this is Albert Einstein. He says, a human being is part of the whole called by universe, a part limited in time and space. And we experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest. This is a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. This delusion is kind of a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison and by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures in the whole of nature and all its beauty. Albert Einstein. Very beautiful. We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest. This is a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. Perhaps it's why um, Ramana Maharshi, one of the great saints of India, when he was dying of cancer, his um, students were saying to him, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And he evidently looked at them in total astonishment and said, where, where am I going? Ain't going anywhere. Where am I going? Perhaps for us as human beings, one of our deepest pains is the pain of separation. You know, in a long time ago, whenever it was, we were all living inside a womb. It was great. We were fed. We're taken care of, it's warm, but then we got too big. <laughs> we got too big. And we were either squeezed out or at some point maybe even cut and had a little assistance to be pulled out. It's a really incredible moment when you think about it. You know? One moment we are connected, and then there's this birth. And then that moment when the cord is cut, separation. I think perhaps I've been wanting to get back to the womb my whole life. Some way, like that sense of belonging, that sense of connection, that sense of, of being at home. I think it's a, an, an incredible human desire to belong, to connect, to be loved, to not be separated. And we, we've all had that experience, being inside, but then that cord was cut, and then it's kind of like every man, every woman for himself. Good luck. I mean, at one point, I was younger, I used to be mad. Why did my parents have a good night one night, and now I've got to deal with this. I'm alive, and I've got to get aging and illness and death too. 
I don't blame my parents. I'm grateful for my life. But at one point, I, I like, you know, gosh, I didn't ask for this, and here I am. Or maybe I did ask for this. Who knows? It's the mystery. It's the bloody mystery. What is this? Yeah, these protons and neutrons and a lot of space and these atoms and we're here. What's, what is all this? What did, we'll say, don't know. <laughs> don't know. What is this? And uh, Bingham writes, to know that the atoms of my body will remain to think of them rising through the roots of a great oak, to live in leaves and branches and twigs, perhaps to feed the crimson peony or the blue iris or the broccoli or on water freezing and thawing with the seasons. In some atoms, they might become a bit of a fluff on the wing of a chickadee to feel the breeze and know the support of air. Some might drift up and up into space. Stardust returning from whence it came. It is enough to know that as long as there is a universe, I am a part of it. As long as there's a universe, I am a part of it. So coming back to um, that longing, you know, I think for so many of us, um, and myself, the the sense of wanting connection. It's so human of us to want connection. It's so human. Even when you look at the word desire in um, Latin, comes, uh, the word is desidare, which is, uh, it's actually interesting, it has its roots, it's like, and then there's another root word from desidare, desidious, from the stars. What the stars will bring. And so, as human beings, there is this, you know, I find it a, a longing to, to be whole, to be connected, to be loved. And of course, in our life, it it comes and goes. It's very fleeting. Perhaps we have the belief that somehow we can discover our wholeness outside of us. This perhaps is where our, our challenges begin. And this misunderstanding can kind of trick us into trying to find happiness, sense of belonging, connection outside of us. 
And of course, these things outside of us that make us feel really good, and this is perhaps one of the causes of addiction because things feel so good, we want it again and again. But of course, uh, living in a conditional world of things that are always changing, we can't get to keep these pleasures. They rise and they fall. The Dharma teaches that this type of going after these types of cravings is, is a cause of suffering. And it's not to say that the Dharma says that it's morally wrong. So that's very important. It's not that it's morally wrong. It's just that it causes suffering. And why? Because you're wanting what you can't have or can't keep. You're wanting what you can't have. Or if you get it, it won't stay. It causes this type of suffering. Looking in the dictionary, desire, longing, craving, a strong feeling of wanting something, to have something, to wish for something to happen. Of course, it manifests in so many ways in food, sex, money, power, fame, and so forth. It is to yearn, to crave, to hunger for, to thirst for, to covet, to be bent upon. It's a lot of different connotations. It speaks about in the Dharma that when we're caught in that type of grasping, it's like a fire. It's actually even said that there's no fire hotter than this type of craving or grasping, no ice colder than, than hatred, no fog thicker than unawareness or ignorance perhaps due to the misconceptions of where we think we can find our happiness, these are great causes that maybe we can find it outside of ourselves, that these are, create a lot of unease. The Buddha wrote in his, uh, his, his realization about suffering, the causes, uh, to, to me it is just so astounding um, what he's pointing to, what he discovered about the causes. So, you know, Mary Grace went over a bit with the, the Four Noble Truths of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Suffering, um, the Noble Truth of the Cessation of Suffering, and the Eightfold Noble Path. But I'm particularly interested in the causes, being that I suffer in life, I'm really interested to want to know what's driving it. And I have found that these teachings about uh, the causes have been personally in my life so, I'm like so incredibly grateful and uh, um, it has been so, such a wise teaching for me. So I'd like to go into it a little bit. And uh, Achen Amaro, he's an Englishman, he's a Buddhist monk, he has a very beautiful rendering of the cause of suffering that I'd like to, to read with you, to you. And he says that this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. It's craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody ever experienced craving 
that is compelling and intoxicating. You know what I'm talking about? Ooh, it's good. <laughs> and it causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. And namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, or the craving to feel nothing. So I want to unpack this a little bit because I think there's such rich, incredible teachings here. So the craving for sensual delight, this is like eros, the libidinal, the desire, and its operation, of course, is to feel good. Sex, television, shopping, you know, Amazon, I don't work for Amazon, but it's really, you know, they, they know how to do it because like one click, man, you got it. It's like a little shot. Boom. It feels good. But then it goes away. And i got to do another one click. It's very clever, you know? One click, you got it. It's an instant little... For some of us. Maybe for some it's not. But I find it quite enjoyable to do that one click. But my bank account, yeah, I don't know. Sensual delight. Remember eating my favorite vegan ice cream, and I was just in heaven. I was totally at one with the ice cream. <laughs> I was in sensual delight. There was no separation, no disconnection, unified, at home, in peace, till I noticed there was one friggin' bite left. What am I going to do now? I'll go get another bowl. <laughs> you ever had that type of thing? Are you watching your favorite show and find out that you have to wait four months for it to come back on again? Like, <laughs> what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> yeah. This is rooted in this belief that somehow something outside makes me whole, makes me happy. And yeah, we do enjoy, no problem. But if somehow we have this belief that this is what's going to make me happy and I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm going here, you know. Kabir, he writes that, um, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps on spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and wore a robe and now I noticed one day it was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day long. I worked hard at dissolving the grief, and now I'm proud of myself. It goes on. It goes on. So perhaps the theme song for Sensual Delight is I just can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much I try, and I try, and I try, I just can't get no. You all have heard of this song, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I was in Taiwan last March teaching a retreat. I was giving a Dharma talk, and so I said, yeah, and the theme songs, I was being, this was being translated into Chinese, and I said, you know, the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction, and no one did anything. And I said, um, does, has anybody ever heard of the Rolling Stones? One person out of a hundred knew, knew of the Rolling Stones. I love that. I said, well, do you know Jerry of Grateful Dead? And like, no, no one ever knew that. 
But I like that as a theme song. I just can't get no satisfaction no matter how much I try. Yeah. So the craving to be someone. Narcissism. I, I, I. Of course, it's filled with inflation and deflation. I remember once, uh, one retreat I was teaching, um, the, a person came and <laughs> told us that um, he was outside doing walking meditation, and he looked around, and he realized he was the best medita- walking meditator in the whole retreat. <laughs> Inflation. And then after he said that, within one second, deflation. I can't believe I said such a thing. I'm the worst person in the universe. It's that can be that quick. That sense of identity, of self, of I'm special. Hi, I'm special. I'm Bob. I teach at Spirit Rock. <laughs> I drive a Prius. I'm trying to impress you. Will you write me a note and tell me how wonderful this Dharma talk is because I need it from you because if you don't do it, I will feel deficient because I am dependent upon you for approval so I can be whole as a human being. I am that scared and insecure. Well, maybe not totally like that, but I'm playing it out a bit, being a little vulnerable here. But I'm actually not wanting you really to send me any note. But, but that's the kind of thing. It, like, it's like I need you for approval of my own worthiness. I need you for that. Because somewhere along the line in my life, I didn't get it. And so I need it from others. This wanting to be someone. It's insidious. And every time, of course, we try to be someone else, it don't work. And actually, the truth of it is, I think it was from Oscar Wilde, he says, everyone else is taken anyways. <laughs> well, you know, what are you trying to be somebody else? They're all taken. The only one that hasn't been taken is ourselves. Yeah. That's why maybe Derek Walcott, he writes, the time will come with elation. You will greet yourself arriving at your own door and in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. And you'll love again this stranger who is yourself whom all your life you ignored for another, giving back your heart to itself. But this craving to be someone has been a, a huge source of suffering for, I know, in my own life, and I trust in, and for many of us, this leaving ourselves in the belief that somehow if I'm accepted by whoever I think is the, the right club or people or organization to be accepted, then somehow I am worthy. And so this is a deep work for us to begin to, to heal these hearts. Perhaps that's why John Kabat-Zinn and Myla, his wife, they wrote a very beautiful book on parenting called Everyday Blessings. I love this book. And they speak about three qualities that are very important in parenting children. And uh, the first two are very easy for me to understand acceptance and empathy. But the third one is called sovereignty. And I didn't quite know what they meant. So as I read more, and um, it's such a beautiful teaching. They're speaking about like honoring the sovereign nature of your children. And, um, you know, when we come in, I would say most of us, particularly when we're infants, we are pretty full of ourselves, you know? 
If an infant's sitting up on the stage here and there's 95 people looking at it, and, and if that infant just decides to just take a poop right here, it could care less what you think. Or pee, or fart, or yell, or cry. It's so full of them. Because so, it's like connected with the, like the cabin sins. It's like the, the, it's, the infant has its own sovereign nature. And then we educate and socialize. And it's probably good that I don't step on the stage and take a poop or pee here in front of you all. I mean, it's probably pretty good that I don't do that. And, um, but at the same time, you know, there's times where in our upbringing we have been shamed. We have been made to feel small. My uncle Sidney, you know, maybe he wasn't meaning, maybe he thought it was funny, but when I go over to see my, my grandmother, my grandmother knew I loved peanuts, and she'd have little bowls of peanuts around. But like when I'd come in, Uncle Sidney would go, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. <laughs> like, I don't got claws, I got fingers. But he somehow thought that was funny. But it was actually, I in- internalized it as feeling shamed, feeling less than. The power of ourselves growing up, because we're, we're developing our identity, right? We're, you know, it seems like finally we've individuated, then we see who it is that we've individuated into, if we're lucky enough, and then we begin the process of healing, untangling the tangle. But we can't help it. We can't bypass this personality because this is what we got. But how can we work with it in such a way that we can grow towards deeper healing? To begin to see more clearly where we're caught, where we're stuck, where we're holding on and pushing away. This, to me, is the heart of the Dharma. Because when you think about the Buddha, when, when he said he experienced the unconditioned, that's implying he broke through all the conditioning, all of the narratives, all of the stories that have enslaved him. And this is perhaps our deep work here, beginning to recognize these places, these limited definitions. I have a friend growing up. His father, you know, you've heard of King Midas, everything you touch to gold, the children's story. Yeah? Yeah. He was called King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. You feel that? It's like in the stomach. In, in, you know, and one time in the MBSR class, we're going around a circle and people are sharing some insights. And one woman says, and I'll pardon my language, but she, she's, she's probably in her early 60s. She says, you know, I really realized that it, I, there's not been one single day in my entire adult life that I haven't called myself an asshole. And then another person said, well, I don't call myself that, but I call myself a dummy. Another person said, well, I don't call myself a dummy, but I call myself stupid or ugly. Like the things that we tell ourselves, we wouldn't tell the others because we wouldn't have any friends if we did. And so these stories, though, that we tell ourselves, we've learned these through our experiences of life, through, through being shamed and so forth. And these become, we identify these are the definitions of who we think we are. And I think that one of the most deepest liberating qualities of this practice is beginning to, first of all, become aware of these stories that we tell ourselves and begin to understand that they're limited definitions. It, they're not the whole story. And of course, my friend with the King Minus, um, he's done deep healing internal work and very successful, not only outwardly, but inwardly. And of course, those people in that class, once you begin to see these stories that you tell yourself, you begin to see that 
it's not the whole picture. Yes, we may have, we will have amnesia, not may. We will forget at times, but once we begin to become aware that, that these are these stories that I'm telling myself that are dragging me down, things will gradually begin to change. So, okay, theme song. From the country western music, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> the last one, the craving to feel nothing. Thanatos, <clears throat> the death instinct, annihilation. Not wanting to be here. Numbing, drugs, alcohol, TV, internet, radio. We get lost in crossword puzzles. There's thousands of ways to not be here. In my own life, I didn't really relate to this till I had an incident some years ago where there was a time where possibly my son had um, lymphoma. And fortunately, it turned out to be mono. And I guess I can say I, I love mono now. The mono was much more curable than, than dealing with lymphoma. But I noticed during that time, all I wanted to do was sleep. I just wanted to sleep. And I, I'd wake up and do what I had to do, but then all of a sudden I'd realize what was going on. And it was like unbearable. I just, I just did not want to feel. It, like, it was like a hit right deep in the guts. And then, then I was like, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. Ah, like then I began to see how many things in my life that I turn away from, so I just don't have to feel, just don't have to be there. Yeah. So the theme song here is uh, from Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock, I am an island. And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. Yeah. So I... I these teachings on the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, to be something, the craving to feel nothing are like extraordinary teachings. I mean, can you relate? I mean, we can relate to this in our humanness and the practices of mindfulness to begin to break free of these stories that have enslaved us. So there's good news here. I'm kind of just going through the pages. We're <laughs> free form tonight. <clears throat> so, I think it might be enough. And, um, Maybe we'll just sit for a little bit and maybe read a poem. There's a lot to chew on, just what I've said. And I actually share with you a very wonderful meditation teaching that my teacher 
I'm going to say his full name, Venerable Tungpulu Toya Kabaye Seropia. Means the, the forest monk from Ghost Mountain, world peace teacher. In one of uh, his last trips to the United States, he offered this particular incredibly simple teaching on meditation. And he said that this was a really good practice to die with. And through the years of practicing this, I also think he was pointing to that we can, from time to time, taste freedom and peace. And so, even, you know, because sometimes we think, oh gosh, enlightenment's like a million lives ahead of me or later. But perhaps we can have little tastes of freedom right now. And so he just does a simple practice with the breath in and the breath out. And in this breath, as you breathe in, that there's no greed or grasping arising in that breath. And as you breathe out, there's no greed or grasping arising as you breathe out. So just experience just for a moment, just for a moment, the breath in and the breath out, no greed, no grasping. And with these next few breaths, as you breathe in and breathe out, experiencing no hatred. As you breathe in, no feelings of hatred or aversion, anger. And as you breathe out, the same. And in these next few breaths, breathing in and breathing out, that this clarity of the mind and the heart, you know you're breathing in as you're breathing in, you're knowing you're breathing out as you're breathing out. Just experiencing no ignorance here, no unawareness. Breathing in and breathing out. So, as we breathe in and out, and of course, uh, the greed falls away, or the grasping in its place gives rise to contentment and ease. So, as you breathe in and out, experiencing contentment and ease, born out of the falling away of any wants, and for that matter, any not wants, the open heart 
content and with ease, breathing in and out in these breaths. And as we breathe in and out, the clarity of the mind and the heart, the understanding of the falling away of greed and hatred and the rising of contentment and ease in the open heart, this clarity of mind and heart, breathing in and breathing out. So may all beings be with peace. Thank you so much. You know, um, I was commenting with uh, Mary Gray, up with our staff, I mean with our teaching team. Um, this retreat is... Um, I've never seen so many, so much diversity in a retreat here. And all my years teaching of young and old and people of color, and it's very inspiring to me. And um, I, I think I do want to read one other thing. This is from Naomi Shiabnai. It's called Gate 4A. I feel like we're all kind of like Gate 4A. So she says, wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning that my flight had been detained for four hours, I heard an announcement. Is there anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A that understands Arabic? And if so, come immediately. Well, one pauses these days and gate 4A was my own gate and I knew some little bit of Arabic. So I went there and there was an old woman in a full tradition, traditional Palestinian embroidered dress one just like my grandma wore, and she was crumpled on the floor, and the flight service person was yelling, help, help, I need some help. She's just wailing. Talk to her, what's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. So I stooped, and I put my arm around the woman, and I spoke to her in the little Arabic that I knew, and as soon as she heard any words in Arabic, however poorly they were used, she stopped crying. And she thought the flight had been canceled entirely and she needed to be in El Paso for a major medical treatment the next day. And I told her, don't worry, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. So we called her son and I spoke with him in English and I told him I'd stay with his mother until we got on the plane. She talked to him and then we called her other sons just for fun. And then I called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic. And they found out, of course, that they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> and then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some of my Palestinian poet friends and let them talk with her too? This all took a couple of hours. By that time, she was laughing a lot. 
And she was telling me about her life and patting my knee and answering questions. And she pulled out a sack of homemade Mamo cookies, little powdered sugary things, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts. And she was offering them to all the women at the gate. And to my amazement, not a single woman declined. It was like a sacred sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mum from California, the woman from Laredo, and they were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. And there's no better cookie. And then the airline broke out beverages and, and two little girls from our flight, they ran around serving us all apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And then I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands. She had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling condition, always tradition, always carrying a plant, always staying rooted somewhere. I looked around at the gate, all these late and weary passengers, and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed to be apprehensive anymore about any other person. They all took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. This is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Thank you, the shared world, all of us. Mm. Thank you and walking and we'll come back to the last sit in a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.